Hello and welcome to the first Booker Prize podcast of 2024 with me, Joe Hamia. And today, not only with me, James Walton, but also with our special guest, Alex Clark, critic, book reviewer for pretty much every publication you can think of, former editor of Granta magazine and host of the TLS podcast, uh, as in Times Literary Supplement, which a lot of people think is the second best books podcast around. You're so rude. God bless you. God bless you. (laughs) God bless you, Alex. Only joking. Uh, I'll uh, take it. I'm going to take that. I'm happy with that. Oh, good. And uh, Alex is joining us today for a sneak preview of some of the big new novels coming out this year, particularly those uh, by authors with some book of form in the past. Uh, So welcome, Alex. Uh, Lovely to have you with us. Where, Where are you joining us from? I'm joining you from the hills of southeast Ireland of County Kilkenny. Oh, how very lovely. We'll get on to our upcoming list of um, books for 2024 soon. But first, Alex, I believe you were a booker judge in 2008 when uh, chair of the judges was Michael Portillo. What was that like? Well, I was so excited to be asked. I mean, it seemed like just the most extraordinary honour to be asked. And I can still remember being taken for a drink by Ian Truin and him popping the question. And I couldn't really believe it was true. So I was very, very excited. Uh, and then, of course, the piles and piles of books arrive. And I don't know if this is still the system, but I know certainly on my library shelves, I still have books with uh, sort of pen marker pen numbers on. I don't know if that's still how it's done. It's quite old school but we had one to 128 or whatever it was uh you know magic marked onto the spines of our books and i still find them now and i've kept every single book okay well thanks alex and let me tell you uh, the plan for today and and indeed our listeners which is that we're going to take uh, turns introducing a 2024 book by um an author that we like saying a bit about that author's past record and generally setting the scene for what should be some of the biggest new fiction of the year. And Alex, seeing as you're you're the guest and we're a very well-brought-up podcast, uh, why don't you go first? (laughs) Well, my my first novel is uh, Colm Toybean's Long Island, which is out in May and which is a sequel to Brooklyn, uh, which was shortlisted for the prize in 2009. This poor man, he's becoming the Beryl Bainbridge. He's had four shortlistings so you know we never try to influence judges in any way but I am saying if you're going to shortlist this again you know you need to be quite sure (laughs) don't put him through a fifth winner ceremony but this is us meeting Eilish Fiorello Eilish Lacey as was 20 years after the events of Brooklyn when she is married and she is living in Long Island uh, and we see what has happened to her and whether, of course, she made the right decision in staying New York in New York or, or not going home to Enniscorthy. Enniscorthy, which is not far from where you live, apparently. It's very near where I live. It's in Wexford, but I live near a lot of county borders. And I have to say, uh, if you drive into Enniscorthy, uh, which you might do, because you might go and visit the castle, for example, uh, you will be greeted by a big sign with Colm Toybean's lovely face on it saying, welcome to Enniscorthy, home of Colm Toybean. It's amazing, isn't it? I don't, think, I don't think there would be a British equivalent. It does seem as if Irish, as if literature's woven into Irish life more than into British life. Have you discovered that since you moved there? I do feel like that. And, 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 you know, I have to be completely truthful. I moved here nearly six years ago and got a lot of family here. And I 
am very aware of my rose-tinted spectacles. It's obviously not a perfect society. However, uh, I enjoy being a person who works with books and language more uh, in Ireland than I did in the UK, if that makes sense. I mean, in the way that the entire culture responds to books and to writers. I think there's less... Uh, obsession with hierarchy and genre. There's a, just a much more inclusive feel to things like live events, to prizes. So it could be rose-tinted spectacles, but yeah, that is what I find. Okay, well, thanks, Alex. And I see your much-loved Irish writer returning to one of his best-loved female characters. And I raise you, uh, Roddy Doyle, <laughs> uh, whose, whose book... Um, uh, the Women Behind the Door is out in September and is the third of his books about Paula Spencer. So she first appeared in The Woman Who Walked Into Doors um, and then a book just called Paula Spencer and now we rejoin her. Uh, so had, had a pretty grim life because, uh, well, she she was the uh, wife of a, a, a an alcoholic drunk who beat the living daylights out of her for 17 years. And just to put that into sort of context, um, Roddy Doyle you know, starts off as a rather jolly writer with the commitments. 1987 hit the jackpot straight away. Um, about a Dubliners who form a soul band, becomes a film directed by Alan Parker, West End musical, a best, in a best-selling soundtrack album. Uh, follows that with books about the same rabbit family, uh, the, um, Snapper and the Van, and the Van uh, shortlisted for the Booker Prize, then wins the Booker Prize with Paddy Clark, Ha Ha Ha, uh, in 1993, narrated by a 10-year-old boy whose parents, we realise more than he does, are splitting up, uh, leading to the tragic playground chant, Paddy Clark has no da, Paddy Clark, ha, ha, ha. Anyway, so that book topped top the Irish bestsellers list for more than a year. He became a bona fide national hero in Ireland uh, and later recalled um, photo opportunities with the horse that won the Melbourne Gold Cup because we both brought glory to our country. Uh, but then, May the 8th, 1994, all that comes to an end with Irish television broadcast the first episode of his drama series, Family. Uh, once again, the setting was the housing estates of North Dublin, but this time um, the father wasn't twinkling and lovable as he had been more or less in the, in the first three books. But uh, Charlo Spencer, this wife-beating drunk who terrorised his family over four episodes of virtually unrelieved grimness. And then, um, uh, as Doyle called this as 17 years later, it caused a storm. The celebrity status that attached to me when I won the booker invitations to open supermarkets and all that shite it all stopped that day family was broadcast and meanwhile his books i think have got sort of grimmer and grimmer as a trilogy that sort of took apart the ira past present and past and present um uh smile which took a you know ripped into the catholic church he's a much a sort of angrier and blacker sort of writer than people think but he but is he he's still popular in ireland presumably oh very very much so and and also because, of course, he, you know, another strand of his writing is something that appears in newspapers and, and in books also, which is, you know, his uh, versions of conversations in pubs, basically, yeah, uh, blokes in pubs talking. And they are not actually, uh, uh, you know, to your point, really, as sentimental as just that little one line might make them sound. Um, but they are, you know, they, they care about the island that he is familiar with. They understand why it has an important place in people's emotions. But I think you're right. He does not turn away from the dark side of Irish society. I'm going to move us away from Ireland now. Oh. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm going to go chronologically. So the next book that I'm excited for comes out uh, in March in the US by Doubleday and in April from Picador, it's Percival Everett's James. 
which is a retelling of uh, Mark Twain's Huckleberry Finn from uh, Jim's perspective. And so whilst uh, certain set pieces from that classic remain the same, the narrative emphasis, I expect, will be fundamentally changed. Um, so for anyone who hasn't uh, read Huckleberry Finn, it's a kind of two-hander. I mean, in Twain's version, Huck Finn is, is definitively the main character. Um, but he essentially fakes, this is Huck Finn, fakes his own death to escape his violent father, who's recently returned to town and uh, begins a, a very sort of dangerous journey by raft down the Mississippi River uh, towards the free states. And along the way, he acquires a companion in the form of an uh, enslaved man called Jim. This sort of does make me think this idea of um, Percival Everett retelling Huckleberry Finn from Jim's perspective of that line from Paul Beatty's The Sellout, uh, in which one character who's the member of an intellectual group rewrites a version of Huck Finn where he replaces, quote, the repugnant N-word, unquote, with warrior and replaces the word uh, slave with dark-skinned volunteer. <laughs> and the retitled <laughs> book is called The Prerogative Free Adventures in Intellectual and Spiritual Journeys of African-American Jim and his young protégé, white brother Huckleberry Finn as they go in search of the lost black family unit. Um, I think Everett is has always been an uncompromisingly lacerating and fiercely intelligent writer. Um, Booker fans will know him by his 2022 shortlisted book, The Trees, um, which quite brutally and maybe a bit improbably, although it seems entirely probable in the book, takes the story of Emmett Till's lynched body and makes it into a quasi-detective novel. But he's probably best known for um, Erasure, which is a novel in which uh, an African-American professor called Thelonious Monk Ellison decides to leave intellectual things behind. And he decides to satirise Americans' love for fetishizing blackness into essentially what you might call hood culture uh, by writing a novel called My Pathology, which is later simply retitled Fuck, under the pseudonym Stag, Stag R. Lee. Um, and that becomes a surprise bestseller, which leads to sort of all sorts of philosophical conundrums on on Monk's part. It's recently actually been made into a film with um, Issa Rae that's come out. It came out late in 2023. Um, and I think we'll get a wider release. Yeah, it's this called, year. called American Fiction, which yes, is a great is title American for it. Fiction. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm really excited uh, for James because um, I think. Everett has never really been short of awards, but he has been short of a kind of public attention that he's recently been getting. His debut novel called Suda was released in 1983, and I feel like I only really began to hear of Everett as a person, maybe around the time that he got his Guggenheim Fellowship in 2015. But yeah, the last few years have been a, a rise to public prominence for him that's kind of way overdue. And particularly in the UK, he's, he used to be published by uh, a great indie that's, I think, now on hiatus called Influx Press. Um, but his part of his backlist has just been bought by Picador. And um, James sold for uh, half a million dollars, which for people who are not au fait with the process of um, acquisitions for literary fiction... Most literary novels sell for between 1,000 and, if you're lucky, 10,000 pounds, unless you happen to have the last name Atwood or, you know, or Rushdie. So I feel like he's really kind of coming into a, a golden period that I'm, I'm quite happy to see. And I would say if 
for that reason you haven't yet read a Percival Everett novel but you are a fan of Paul Beatty or Zadie Smith or No Violet Below Io, then you you could definitely pick up James and give it a go and also Erasure which I just think is one of the most genius books I've ever read in my life. Yeah, it'd be really interesting particularly as he's a fan of Mark Twain so it's not, it doesn't sound like it's going to be a takedown. No Twain. I don't think it, I just I can't like no. the thing about him is he's always so surprising with his comedy you never know exactly in which direction it's going to kind of hit out so I make no predictions for the book except for the fact that it's probably going to be genius. That's, that's a fair prediction. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, uh, Alex, do you want to add anything there? Do you want to move on to your next well, one? Well, I just, I mean, I love the trees. And the thing about it, obviously, such a, a horrific story that mm. he was telling. It was so funny. Yeah, that's the thing and about it. it was him. so incredibly pacey. I mean, you were just utterly sucked in. You were laughing. You didn't think you should be laughing. <laughs> and of course, it you know, it was a retelling with all sorts of weird bits of genre fiction kind of melded into this retelling of an actual historical event and this a retelling of, uh, you know, this literary kind of icon, I suppose, is absolute classic, is fascinating. And you're right, you never really know what he's going to do, do you, Joe? No. It's, uh, so, yeah, pretty pretty excited by that too. All right, Alex, uh, what, is, what is your next pick? Well, I'm going to go with Neil Mukherjee's choice. Um, he was shortlisted in 2014 for a, a, a really chunky uh impressive uh novel called the lives of others which was a family saga it was about a, a family and all the kind of all that that entailed all the sort of jockeying for position and the who loves who most and who's a disappointment and who's not the intermarriage of, of the younger generations of family with other families um, but it also had the, the radical politics it was set in the late 60s early 70s in india uh and this book choice is a, is three stories that are kind of interwoven with one another and i suppose we've seen that in 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 the book haven't we? we've seen it this year um with jonathan escoffrey's novel which i uh, novel stories i loved um but Mukherjee is such an interesting and brilliant writer he he's he was a great favourite slash protégé of the late A.S. Byatt. Uh, and he just has a, a, a kind of fantastic engagement with different literary traditions. Um, he works wonderfully at a kind of sentence level and he's very interested in plotting. And this, this uh, collection of three pieces, which all talk to one another, as I understand it, is about a publisher, an academic and a family in rural India. So we wait to see what that happens he was of course you know four books in now so he's a very talented writer so i'm excited by that and that's out in april isn't it i believe yes it is yes yeah. okay uh, well in that case back to me i seem to have cornered the uh, the marketing people have actually won the booker because <laughs> no, no 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 your books are all fine don't get me wrong uh which is um <laughs> howard jacobson with uh, what will survive of us out in february um he's got pretty good book of form long listed for Who's Sorry Now and Kaluki Nights, shortlisted for Jay in 2014, and was a hugely popular winner in 2010 with The Finkler Question. Um, and this seems to be uh, about a female TV documentary maker and a male writer who fall in love in midlife after working together. And it sounds as if the book follows them through to old age, which suggests, I don't know how perceptive I'm being here, 
that this is uh, may have its autobiographical elements, uh, given that Jacobson's third wife, Jenny, he married in 2005, worked with him on TV documentaries before that, and they've been happily together ever since, with Jacobson now 81. It also suggests that he's going to give us one of his later, more sort of tender works, um, after a career mostly dedicated to the belief that a novel should be an impious disturbance that refuses ever to bow to the great god Nice, as he said. So his early, his early books, in fact, most of his books, up, up to about the Finkler question, pretty ferocious. Um, and, I mean, I, I know I bang on about Philip Roth but a lot, but, it, but he's actually known as the English Philip Roth as by the press. And as, as press labels go, that's not entirely uh, inaccurate, I don't think, both in their, their biography, uh, but also in their... Um, belief as, as to what books should do, which is basically to cause offence. He, he says, you know, that a novel hasn't got, just got the right, it's got the duty to cause offence, because, quote, giving offence is sacred, is italics. Uh, he's also savaged universities for being scared of offending students, uh, suggesting that everybody starting at once should be greeted with the words, good morning, students, welcome to a liberal education where you will encounter, if we are doing our job right, much that will distress and infuriate you. But the thing is, since the Finkler question, there's been no doubt that you know history is not rolling in the direction of writers like him. Um, and, and in fact, since then, his books have become sort of nicer. Um, and his last one, um, which was um, Live a Little About Love in Old Age, was, was positively sweet. I don't know if, if anybody read it, but it's, it's really, really lovely. And so the question is, you know, what, what, what's happened to old Howard? Um, and I think there's three possible reasons. One is that um, he suggested all of these at various points, is that he's sort of accepted, if, if not in massively good grace, that the new rules aren't going to go away or just be a fad as he'd hoped. So, so that's that. Um, the swordsman hero flashing his prose around, writing with a pen dipped in hot semen, was dead in the water, he writes. Um, so that, that, that's, one, that's one possibility. Another one is that maybe it's just time for a change. One of the minor characters in Live a Little is a novelist who sounds quite Jacobson-like, and, and, and it's said of him, he's been going around in the same dreary emotional garb all his life. And as the old, older woman tells the old man in the, in, the, in the book after they've fallen in love, you've told the same unvarying story to yourself a thousand times, risk another story. Or, third theory as to why Howard Jacobson's gone nice, uh, it might just be autobiographical. Uh, he said in an interview a few years ago, I've enjoyed the whole experience of ageing, having been querulous, bitter, miserable, sometimes envious, mean, certainly a very bad husband, I've become at my age quite a nice guy. <laughs> so, <laughs> so anyway, I, so I, I'm, I think this will be quite a sweet book about love from middle age to old age of the kind that I'm looking forward to reading, but that would have been unimaginable from him sort of 20 years ago. He's always been really interested in sentimentality. Yes, there is that. You know, there are heroes, protagonists in his novels who themselves get absolutely kiboshed by their own sentimentality, yeah. by their own immoderation in loving, in jealousy and all that kind of thing. Um I, I don't know. I mean, I think he, he sort of has combined the two. I can't imagine a book by him that would be entirely sweet. His memoir, Mother's Boy, was amazingly uh, brilliant at sort of combining these two aspects of, I suppose, his temperament, his sensibility, we might say. So I would read anything by Howard Jacobson. I mean, that piece that he wrote that that became I think the collect uh, the title of a collection of his non-fiction his journalism about seeing a dog who was about to die I mean I can't read it now without weeping but I but I do think he's come to this new sweetness as he says himself I think maybe he has just become a nice guy we shall see when that book is out in February the love of a good woman will do that to so many people that seems to be possible
<laughs> okay, well, I, my next choice is uh, someone who would robustly disagree with that statement. <laughs> it's um, Rachel Cusk, whose parade is coming out from Faber and Faber and from FSG in the US in June. Um, now, I think since the advent of the Outline trilogy, Cusk's novels are quite sort of enigmatic. Uh, when you try to sum them up. I'm a massive Rachel Cusk fan. She's one of the most influential writers in my life. But on this occasion, I am going to cheat and just read Faber's summary of it. And uh, listeners can see what they make of it, because I don't think I could say I could make anything cogent out of this. This definitely feels like a teaser. So midway through his life, the artist G begins to paint upside down. Eventually, he paints his wife upside down. He also makes her ugly. The paintings are a great success. In Paris, a woman is attacked by a stranger in the street. Her attacker flees, but not before turning around to contemplate her victim, like an artist stepping back from a canvas. At the age of 22, the painter G leaves home for a new life in another country, far from the disapproval of her parents. Her paintings attract the disapproval of a man she later marries. When a mother dies, her children confront her legacy, the stories she told, the roles she assigned to them, the ways she withheld her love. Her death is a kind of freedom. And then you've got from Faber a kind of copy that says, uh, Parade sets loose a carousel of lives and surges past the limits of identity, character and plot to tell the story of G, an artist whose life contains many lives. It does sound incredibly Cuskian, although a lot more um, complex than her last four novels, um, which I'm a massive fan of. So Cusk, as a bit of background, is, uh, well, People who are sort of up to date on their Booker facts will know that she has been twice long listed so far. First for Into the Fold in 2005, which is a novel about a man whose illusions of family life and country wealth and free living fall steadily apart. Uh, and then second place, uh, which is the relationship between uh, M, who is a writer, and L, uh, who is a painter. M invites L to stay in her marshland home. And I, I don't think I can say much more about it without kind of uh, spoiling everything for everyone. But I think Cusk is sort of best known for her outline trilogy, none of which, incredibly enough, have been even long-listed for the Booker Prize. She hasn't got a fantastic Booker record. Which I think is like a tragedy. Anyway, if you can't tell, I really, really love Rachel Cusk. And Parade sounds like a kind of advance of a new stage of all the things that have made her last four books so special amped up to to a kind of another level and I'm going to do my usual thing and do some comp writers but if if you are a sort of fan of um Celia Poole's recent writing um a biography of of her time at the Slade and as an older artist or if you're a fan of Sheila Hetty or of um Annie Arnaud or of Deborah Levy then I think Parade is kind of going to be right up your alley and Rachel Cusk is someone that you should be checking out more generally She's a massive hate figure on Mum's Net is one thing I know about her. Because oh, she wrote God. a book called The Life's Work about being a mother and how absolutely terrible. Yeah, she did. Was. She is completely unsparing. Where, where do you stand on Rachel Cusk, Alex? Well, I, I agree. I love I love those, those books. I love the Outline trilogy. I also like quite a lot of her earlier books, which did the same thing in, in very different kind of... Um, narrative, you know, she had very different narrative strategies, but exactly mm. that kind of unflinchingness that, you know, this very boring story about, you know, conversation about whether characters should be likable. I mean, they don't even, doesn't even go, I mean, they're all horrible. 
everyone's horrible and mad in all her books. And you can't say fairer than that, can you? <laughs> yeah. Alex, go on. So my, my final uh, pick is uh, The Spoiled Heart by Sanjeev Sahotha. Um, shortlisted in 2015 for the year of the runaways uh, and longlisted in 2021. Some would say I might be one of them that perhaps should have been shortlisted for China Room. Um, and this is a book that's set in the Peak District, and it's about uh, a man and a woman who have possibly known each other or been acquainted in some kind of way in a previous life. But it's basically about coming back. Uh, the female character Helen comes back, a child in tow, uh, and then she meets this man, Nyan, uh, who is a union leader. I was intrigued by this because union leaders, very big in Paul Lynch's uh, prophet song. Maybe it's a new, I need another one. And then I could write a trend piece <laughs> That's about why unions are cropping up. Three things make a trend, the old rule of journalism. Exactly so, exactly. But I'm enormously, I really, really like Sanjeev Sahota's work and I'm very much looking forward to it. Okay, well, my next one is another Irish writer um, from the generation below uh, Roddy Doyle and Colm Toy Bean, I think. Um, and this is Kevin Barry. Uh, he's different from them in another way, too. Um, their prose, I mean, Toy Bean's prose is so quiet, so subtle, so gentle. Roddy Doyle's is fairly straightforward. Um, and this is Kevin Barry on his own prose. I knew from an early age, I knew, this is when he, when he first started out, I knew that I would never have a quiet, unshowy prose style. Sometimes I yearned for one. But my prose behaved like an hysterical, step-dancing, ginger-haired child lapping up and down on the page, looking for attention. And and that's sort of been the case in his three books so far. There, there, there's one called um, City of Bohain, which was brilliant. It was his first book set in a, an island of, in the 2050s, a sort of cyberpunky Wild West. A, a really hard, hard book to summarise, so, so I won't try, except to say it was extraordinarily good and uh, funny and thrilling. And actually won the uh, International Dublin Impact Award, which is worth... Uh, 100,000 euros, which is, I'm sad to say, twice as much as the booker. Um, his second one was about John Lennon visiting an island off the Sligo coast that the real Lennon had brought in 1967, but long abandoned, the portrait of Lennon adrift, uh, but still, again, a book with sentences absolutely lapping uh, up and down, looking for attention. But in that case, I felt slightly as a substitute for, for forward momentum rather than aid to it. His third book, Boat to Tangier, which was long-listed for the 2019 booker, was the same really it was it was in that case it wasn't really until about halfway through that it it ran out of steam i i i felt but it's about two aging irish gangsters who uh, like john lennon actually their, their glory days are behind them by the time we join them um but it's still i mean it's still it's still a, a great book and i still think he's an amazing writer and they'll write plenty of really really great books in the future and obviously i'm hoping that one of them will be his new one which is the heart in winter out in june um and it sounds as if it's playing to his strengths it's set in Boot, montana in 1891 hard winter approaches across the rocky mountains I'm quoting from the blow a bit here. City is rich in copper miners and rampant with vice and debauchery among a hard-living crowd of Irish immigrant workers. Here we find Tom Rourke, a, a young poet and ballad maker of the town, but also a doper, a drinker, and a fearsome degenerate. I think I'll leave it there. But you, uh, that, sound, that sounds like what's not to like to me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I, and I, I, do, I do think Kevin Barry, Kevin Barry, I don't know if he's quite broken through to the British. Is he, is he a big deal in Ireland again, my, my traditional he is, question? He is, yes. Yes, well, he's, he's great, much, isn't he? In that generation. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I look forward, to, look forward to that very much. The Heart in Winter by Kevin Barry, out in June.
Joe, I think you've got, you got non-fiction for us now, eh? Yes, I've got a kind of whistle-stop tour through all the non-fiction that I'm interested in that's coming out, and it is really eclectic and kind of fascinating. So I'm really invested um, in this month's collected essays um, from John Berger's archive called uh, The Underground Sea, uh, which is a kind of compilation of his writings on the miners' strike. I was really, really lucky, and I'm going to do a massive shout out to a piece of work that I and uh, our producer for this podcast, John, did a while ago to work on a John Berger documentary for Booker. I spent quite a lot of time in the British Library in his in his archives, which are just so rich and beautifully written and illustrated as well. And I just think that is an incredible thing to look out for, especially in the throes of our current conservative government and an upcoming general election. Um, the next thing that's really intriguing, and I did say that this would be eclectic, is that um, uh, Kazuo Shiguro has an upcoming uh, kind of book of song lyrics written for the jazz singer Stacey Kent, who's been he's been collaborating with since 2007. Um, He's a classic frustrated musician among many Booker writers, isn't he? Yes, it's called um, The Summer We Crossed Europe in the Rain, yeah, yeah. which is very Cohen, isn't it? Yes. Possibly not that frustrated anymore. <laughs> like that. Um, and that's going to be out in March. And then finally, the one that probably everyone is going to be most intrigued by is... Uh, Knife by Sam and Rushdie. Um, now, for those of you not aware, Rushdie was stabbed several times um, whilst giving a talk in upstate New York. And the stabbing did occur in connection with the fatwa that he's had placed upon him uh, since the publication of his uh, book, The Satanic Verses. And it's pretty much, um, with the exception of an interview given to the New York Times in 2023, going to be the first thing we hear about his... Um, recollections and musings on the incident so that is kind of anticipated sounds like a a really glib word to use for something that's resulted in him losing sight in one eye I mean, it is anticipated there's a big deal yeah the subtitle is uh, meditations after an attempted murder yeah it's, you know it, that will make us that will make us splash as i suspected would happen we're running out of time uh, a bit now with several books to go so um and one of these uh, the most eagerly awaited or possibly feared must be My Heavenly Favourite by Lucas Reineveld, translated by Michelle Hutchinson, who together won the International Booker in 2020 with the Discomfort of Evening, a novel that uh, in the traditional formulation was not for the faint-hearted. But, well, Publishers Weekly said, The macabre material is loaded with sexual transgressions, paedophilia, animal torture and abuse. The onslaught can be numbing. Um, but uh, apparently it could have been worse, because according to The Guardian, the Dutch version also contained a joke deemed too offensive for British publication, which I'd love to know what that was. Uh, and it sounds as if um, Lucas Reinveldt's sticking to the guns for the, for, the, for the new book, which is a, like the first one set on a Dutch dairy farm, where it sounds as if all sorts of horrible things happen. Actually, it's the first book I've ever seen with a trigger warning on Amazon, actually, <laughs> which is, uh, this novel is about an adult who's sexually attracted to a minor and contains sexual violence. Uh, Alex, did, any, did you read the first one? I did, and it is a. I mean, I I can't guess what the thing that was left out of the English translation was, <laughs> but it certainly was a deeply unsettling book, even for someone like me who will always read a book about a dairy farm. <laughs> so you know, I'm I love books about farming because I live in the middle of lots of farms, but it was a very upsetting book, very striking, very individual. So yeah, interesting to see what they're they're going to do next. Yeah, so we do have a, a few others, which really regrettably we don't have time to do a, a full 
um, summary of, but um, which I'm also really intrigued by. And we've got Chigozi Obioma's uh, The Road to the Country, Helen Oyemi's uh, Parasol Against the Axe, uh, Rachel Kushner's Creation Lake, and Tim Parks's Mr. Geography. It's also an interesting looking one, which is written by 14 writers. I've got 14 days, a collaborative novel, various uh, characters in an apartment building in New York with different famous writers doing each chapter, among them Margaret Atwood, Rachel Kushner again, and Emma Donoghue, who have all got um, book of form. I have absolutely no idea what booker policy is on multi-authored books. Yes, that'd be interesting, wouldn't it? If, Not a clue. I know of... there's been so many, you know, you can't be dead, you can do, you know, all this <laughs> kind of thing. But can you, you know, it's not, I, I put that more um, more uh, diplomatically, uh, no posthumous publication. But uh, multi-authored books, well, can you imagine what would happen to the prize money? Would there be, the speeches would go on for hours? Who can there, tell? There are 14 writers going up on stage. They only get about three grand each, wouldn't they? Um, we should m- move away from boring on about booker authors on a booker podcast and look at some people who <laughs> that's are our, that's, our, that's our job, Joe. <laughs> just, as, just as worth reading who, who do not, exactly. as James Which, seems yeah. to keep saying, have booker form. <laughs> yeah, these people have just not got booker form. I mean, <laughs> how you know, dare they? Uh, for what? How dare they? But then, And I actually, I must say, I focus slightly on these books because actually a book I've already read and one that I'm reading. Hey. Uh, Michael Cunningham's Day, which I've read 25 years after The Hours. This is not a sort of The Hours, uh, mm. but it does have a kind of similarity. It's called Day and it has a similarity, structurally speaking, uh, because it is set on a single day three years apart and it's kind of just as the pandemic is about to hit the pandemic is never actually mentioned by name mm. uh in the midst of of a lockdown and then in a sort of coming out of lockdown uh and i really really enjoyed it I thought do you it was think very, it's on par good. with the hours i adore the hours and i think it's so formally inventive i think it's certainly you can see so many of the themes that really interested him in the way that people make these extremely difficult accommodations in families and deal you know so much is unspoken in the dynamic between people that I I would read it because I think you may very well like it and the other book I'm reading at the minute is Enlightenment by Sarah Perry uh and uh all I really know about this you know extra in an extra literary sense is that she basically I think taught herself physics that's God. What she's done for the last few years. She's been learning proper physics, and there's a lot of physics. I'm keeping up so far. I'm about 50 pages in, really enjoying it, and I'm just about managing to keep up with the astrophysics, and I have hopes that I may actually learn something. Um, and I'm also just going to very quickly mention Joseph O'Neill's Godwin. That's out in uh, June, I think, because um, it's partly about football and as we know Netherlands he wrote about cricket I mean this is a way of exploring particularly things like global migration and and the way that it is treated in different parts of the world Uh, and this recurs in this book Godwin but it is about uh, the pursuit of a footballer who it says in the blurb could be the next Messi so I'm obviously going to read that. Uh, and, and Sarah Perry, we should say, was, had that massive hit a few years ago with the, the, the Essex, Essex Serpent. Sir. Yes, and this book is indeed set in Essex. Was that was that not literary enough for the book of the Essex Serpent, or was it? 
tragically overlooked. What do you mean too many people liked it? I loved it, I must say. <laughs> yeah, I, sort of. Sort of. <laughs> uh, I, didn't, I didn't mean that. I, I love lots of books and so do other people that have won the Booker Prize and have, as James says, book of form. But I really did love The Essex Serpent. I found it so enjoyable. You invite people on from another podcast, they're going to do that sort of thing to you. No, no. <laughs> Uh, Elizabeth, absolutely lovely to have you, Alex. Uh, thanks so much oh, for your pleasure. time. Oh, uh, my pleasure. My pleasure. That was lovely, wasn't it? Yeah, I really enjoyed that. <laughs> uh, so, James, without choosing any of your own books uh, <laughs> that you've presented to us, what, what sounds most exciting to you for the year ahead? Uh, you'll be pleased to know, uh, Joe, it was one of yours, actually, uh, Percival Everett James. Yes. Huckleberry Finn from uh, Jim's point of view. I think that sounds terrific. And I haven't read any of his books, but you made such a good case for him that I now need to read at least three, <laughs> including James. He's so funny, but also so brutal. You're like shocked at yourself for laughing, kind of like with the sellout, but kind of like I love the sellout, but I feel like Everett is on a on a different level. Um, I'm going to be sacrilegious. And I'm going to choose one of the non-Booker books. <laughs> what? And... You're not cho choosing Howard Jacobson then? Oh, do you know what? I I somehow just can't find it in me. Um, I'm I'm going to choose uh, Day by Michael Cunningham that Alex said that she's finished now and absolutely loved because I am genuinely such a massive fan of um, The Hours, which uh, was kind of like a take on Mrs. Dalloway, which created sort of three intertwined narratives between Mrs. Dalloway herself as a character and Wolf and then a, a modern day housewife and kind of took them through a day much like um, Wolf's novel does. And, and, and rather surprisingly we became a hit movie. Given, yes, given with Nicole summary. Kidman and a prosthetic nose. Oh, the famously uh, Nicole Kidman's nose was the star of the, star of the film. Wasn't it? There's a really great uh, essay by former Booker judge uh, Hermione Lee on the subject of that prosthetic nose. Um, which I do encourage people to find. Maybe we can put it in the show notes. But yeah, Day Day sounds like, I mean, I'm just, it's his first novel in 10 years and I, I'm just really excited because the form of his books are just like, they seem to be exquisite. So Joe, what about the books we just didn't didn't have time for and with apologies to all their authors? Yeah, it's really unfortunate because um, there are some really great authors on here. Chigozi Obioma um, has a book coming out called The Road to the Country. Andrew O'Hagan, uh, Caledonian Road. Andrew O'Hagan seems to have like an incredible rate of production, I have to say. Um, I, I just, I, I'm always hearing that there's something, although maybe it's just, you know, the mayflies kind of endlessly being uh, appreciated and loved. Anyway, we've got Helen Oyemi with um, Parasol Against the Axe, Rachel Kushner with Creation Lake, and Tim Parks with Mr. Geography. So plenty to look forward to in 2024, including, of course, lots of lovely Booker Prize podcasts. But that's it for this week. Next week, we'll be taking a look at the 1990 Booker Prize winner, Possession by A.S. Byatt, uh, January's Booker Novel of the Month. And our book group on Facebook is still going strong. You can join at any time. Just search for the Booker Prizes. And of course, as you probably know by now, you can follow us on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram, on TikTok, and on Substack at the Booker Prizes. Oh, it's so punchy, James. Thank you. I love that energy. <laughs> Until next time. Bye. Bye. The Booker Prize podcast is hosted by Joe Hamia and me, James Walton. It's produced and edited by Kevin Miolo. And the executive producer is John Davenport. It's a Daddy Super Yacht production for the Booker Prizes. 